Welcome to another episode of Dr. Crime. Today, we aren't talking about a case. Instead, we want to do a myth-busting episode where we go over so much misinformation that presides in the true crime genre. We may casually discuss heavy topics like suicide, sexual assault, abuse, death of a child, murder, and much more. We don't expect to go into detail, but the topics may be brought up, so just be careful. So much misinformation out there, Mm -hmm. and honestly, that's why we started our podcast. Um, Many of you guys may know we are both TikTok content creators, so of course we're sort of part of that true crime community, Mm -hmm. so... We also see a lot of true crime on our personal For You pages, and um, not all of it's great. Um, There's just a lot of misinformation between the creators and the consumers of true crime. I know. It's so awful. The amount of times I see a TikTok that just has wrong information, and the comments then encourage the incorrect information, it's just astounding. And then... That incorrect info gets passed around and people are looking in the wrong direction. And honestly, I can't, the biggest one for me is human trafficking. I can't (laughs) even begin to tell you. So myth number one, human trafficking is being abducted and held hostage against your will and sold into sex slavery. Um, No, no, just no. (laughs) Um, Most people don't actually know what human trafficking is. And I think that that's how it kind of is perpetuated like that. So let me just start off by saying that if you see a social media post and it's just as bad, if not worse on Facebook and other social media platforms where someone says, Oh my God, I was almost just trapped at target. This woman came up to me and she followed me down every aisle and she tried making friends and talked about how cute my kid was. I think I was just almost just trafficked. Like watch out there. No, you weren't. You were not almost trafficked. Um, That does not mean that there might not have been ill intentions. Mm Mm-hmm. But it is not trafficking. And when people are looking in the direction of trafficking only occurs when people come up to me at Target, they're not looking at the actual issues of human trafficking. I think that they're also, it's, you know, part of the problem is that they're taking away resources. There's already, like, very limited law enforcement resources dedicated to human trafficking victims. And when their call lines are being flooded with people who, you know, a guy happened to be walking to his car in the same direction in the Target parking lot. What about the real victims? Exactly. And I feel like it's a slap in the face to people that were victims because the big thing with trafficking is that it's not who you don't know. It's not stranger danger. It's about the people you do. So it, you know, it just takes away from the fact that like everyone thinks that sex trafficking is that you're going to get abducted, you're thrown in a van, you know, you're blindfolded, and then you're thrown into some dungeon where you're strapped to a mattress and just there's this line of predators coming in to rape you all the time. That's not even close to how that works. Which is, of course, not a saying that that is, I guess, sometimes how it works, like rarely, but like less than 1% rarely. Right. Most of the time, it's labor. Mm hmm. It's labor or, you know, a God knows what else. But yeah, it's not exactly the way that these Facebook posts and stuff make it seem. No. Uh, also, trafficking is not just smuggling someone across the borders. No. It's not, you know, when you're locked in a basement, tied to a mattress, like you said. It's not some kid being flown across the world to some high profile elitist. Like it honestly doesn't even really happen like that. And a lot of people don't realize you kind of, I mean, you said it, but when you get trafficked, when things like that happen, most of the time, it's by someone that the victim knows well. Mm -hmm. And it's by, and a lot of times it's in their own home. I mean, you're seeing it come out of foster families. You're seeing it come out of adoptive families. You're seeing it come out of people that are with their biological parents, you know, and family members. Now there is a really good website for so many resources on the myths of human trafficking versus what the truth is. So I want to take a direct quote from their website. Now quote, force, fraud, or uh, coercion must be present for a situation to be trafficking And that force, fraud, or coercion must be a factor that compels the person to remain in the situation. If you hire someone and promise to pay a certain amount and then go back on that promise, that is fraud. If the person you cheated is free to leave and go file the complaint, then it's not trafficking. Therefore, it may be exploitation or blackmail that keeps you from leaving. So then you're not, then you're willingly doing things. 
And mm-hmm. so many, I think on the Polaris website, it said over 67% of trafficking victims didn't even know they were being trafficked until years out of the situation. So when people tell the stories of, I'm about to be trafficked in the Target parking lot, and oh my god, this guy came up to me at the mall and told me I had a cute kid, I think he was about to traffic us. No. I, I do want to say too, though, because I, I realize how this can kind of be like a double-edged sword. If you are in a situation where you're, for whatever reason, genuinely uncomfortable, don't hesitate to contact law enforcement. Don't Mm -hmm. hesitate to, you know, take proper precautions. Make sure that you and your children or whoever are properly taken care of. Right. Immediately going to Facebook and saying, I was almost trafficked is probably not the best bet. No, and it can be very, very scary and traumatic in situations. And we're not to diminish the situation itself. What we want to do is just let you know, we're not saying that there's not harm that could have come from that situation. Rather, there could have been harm, but not likely trafficking. Something else, when I I just did some research on human trafficking, um, I thought it was really interesting. And it's a myth that I also thought. But it is actually half of trafficking victims, roughly, are males. Mm -hmm. And male LGBTQ youth are, like, particularly vulnerable to trafficking, which is something, which, that makes sense, but I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, it, they're, they're the biggest target demographic. A lot of people think it's young, vulnerable females. It's male, teen, LGBT, um, because they're most likely to be homeless they're most likely to be vulnerable. They're most likely looking for love and attention and affection. And older males know that. And they know how to appeal to that demographic and to get them to trust you and that they're easy, easier to groom. It's, it's heartbreaking, but it's so important to know that information because if you, if you don't realize the truth and the reality of human trafficking, of human trafficking, it's so easy to just not think that you're going to be a victim. Meanwhile, you could be currently a victim because you'll have people that are like, oh, that's not what happened to me. Like, you know, my foster dad and I have a great relationship and sometimes I, you know, will do things for free for his friends and whatever. And, but they're always going to love me. And so it's fine. That can be trafficking. But the kind of like classic example that comes to mind, and I'm not even really sure this falls under trafficking, so we can, of course, like, edit this out later if I'm wrong, but um, are the teachers, like, there are a lot of stories about teachers that groom young students, and then they end up, like, running away with them, and the students end up, whatever, that, I mean, judging by what we're saying, like, that would fall under trafficking in some situations. In some situations, yep, but there has to be that force, the fraud, or the coercion. Oh, true, yeah. So in some cases it could be, but in a lot of your teacher student, it's exploitive and there's definitely, but there have been teachers charged. And I mean, school is such an easy place for groomers to find people. And so they'll find people in schools. I mean, look at Epstein's victims. Mm-hmm. One of them recruited with, you know, girls in her grade. Yeah. And they were just going to Epstein's private island to hang out and nothing is wrong until it is. So I want to move on to myth number two, and I think this is going to be a very, very big one for Rebecca, um, and that's it. the myth that crime scenes are processed just like in criminal procedure shows. I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but we got to do it. <laughs> yeah, so the thing that immediately strikes me about every single one of these shows is that they all have, you know, like a CODIS system. And every single person on the entire planet's DNA is in them. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they have a criminal history. It does, they put in a fingerprint and boom, they know that person's name and address and their relatives and their and this is unfortunate. And where they work and they got it in like an hour. Exactly. And they're always in the same geographical area. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is not exactly how that works. Um, no. We do, there are DNA d- databases, of course, but usually these are for, like, violent offenders. And if, so if it's somebody's first violent offense, there's a good chance their DNA is not in there. Of course, people that join, like, the military, their fingerprints are on file. But again, that sort of transitions into DNA as a whole is really misunderstood throughout the criminal justice system. Watching these TV shows, I think, is kind of the big <laughs> problem here. But they portray it like, if the suspect leaves back behind one strand of hair, you can immediately identify who it is. Yep. And 
I've been looking a lot into specifically hair DNA lately because we we know the West Memphis Three case is becoming very big again, mm-hmm. and t- uh, hair from Terry Hobbs allegedly was found at the scene. But what people don't understand is all that means is that hair maybe matched hair from Terry Hobbs's head. It was similar to Terry Hobbs's hair. That does not mean you cannot take a strand of hair scientifically and prove that it came from someone's head. You can't do it. So I always find that really interesting. Um, you know, and of course, there's the myth that like there's DNA everywhere. Yeah. No. I, mean, I mean, like the touch DNA too. Like we think about the John Benny Ramsey case, you know, they, that the, the touch DNA that was on her pants and it's not that easy to solve. And even, it, you know, the reason I bring that up is because now the dad is looking to have that retested again because there's new, um, there's, there's new technology. Touch DNA is very, very difficult and very high rates of false positives. Also, with really like scarce DNA like that, the continuous testing, it ruins the DNA. Mm-hmm. It ruins the sanctity of the DNA, mm-hmm. makes it more weak, makes it easier to break. And and it's not even, you can't even necessarily rule it out because people are like, oh my God, if we get that, if we can get the DNA on that fingerprint, that's it. We solve the case. No, it's not that There's, simple. No. And we, I mean, that should be evident just by the sheer number of cases where there is DNA, there is fingerprints, there's, oh my god, you just said Jabani Ramsey, there's DNA in, how long has that case been unsolved? Yeah. You know, one of the cases that I am very particularly interested in, that we may be talking about soon, is the Darley Routier case. Oh, yeah. And um, there's fingerprints and palm prints that were found at the scene, and have never been tied to anyone conclusively. That's why it's really hard building a case on small DNA evidence pieces like that because you it could have come from anywhere. Even like the just the crime scene in general, the way that they process crime scenes. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. Sometimes you'll watch them and they'll be like touching the victim and moving people around and yeah. That's just not really how it works. They come in, they close everything off. They let the analysts come in and do their job first. Yep. And then really everything just gets back and taken to the lab. And then they, I, I've seen this in a lot of shows, they go out of the scope of their practice too. <laughs> yeah, there will be like a crime scene investigator there who's like <laughs> listing suspects off. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just the crime scene process and it's just so off. I think the people... Um, they think they know how it works too. And I think it's the content of that episode of that, you know, series. I mean, some of these shows are just so off. Like, yes, the crime itself, you know, okay, putting even putting that aside, think about like shows like Criminal Minds. Now I've seen all the way through when Derek got kidnapped and like when Criminal Minds was like live on air. And then when I was re-watching Criminal Minds again, I got to the same part of the show and I was like, I can't do this anymore because Every episode, Garcia is using this made-up technology where she can see everyone admitted to a hospital across, you know, certain radius, and then she can cross-reference those people with people that were adopted, and then she can see if their last paycheck was under $2,000, and bada-bing, bada-boom, we have John Smith, and then, oh, John Smith is at the bank, he just made a transaction 10 minutes ago, let's head there. Uh, No. That is such a plot device. And I think that people subconsciously watch shows like Law and Order and Criminal Minds or, you know, what have you, and think that crime can just be solved that quickly. And so I see it in every day where, okay, a big crime has happened. And then in like the Facebook comment section, which never read Facebook comment section of a case that's <laughs> being current, um, you know, oh, this is so easy. Like, why, why isn't it done yet? It's been 24 hours. Why isn't this case solved yet? It doesn't work like that. It, it, it physically cannot work like that. I mean, just using the plot devices in so many shows are for entertainment because that's mm-hmm. what it is, entertainment. But you have people that think that there's more to the truth than there really is. And then they're like, oh, these investigators are so stupid. How hard can this be? You know, it is I hard. Your mini rant was the perfect segue into myth number three, which is <laughs> you can get away with crime just because you watch a lot of Law & Order. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> the amount of times, especially once, once I start talking about 
my passion. My passion is criminal psychology and understanding people. Um, the amount of people that are like, oh my God, I could totally get away with murder because I watch oh, yeah. every true crime episode. First of all, don't tell me that. Don't <laughs> tell me that you think you can get away with taking someone's life because you've watched too much TV. Like, think about that statement for a second. Yeah, it's that's a little, that's a little, we need to call a therapist. <laughs> it just, I, so many people say that to me and it just it it gets under my skin because I'm like you have no idea what it takes you know it's really interesting because come to think of it a lot of people do say that if I say like oh yeah criminology they kind of go oh boy I love SVU and I'm like well that's not really okay <laughs> yeah I get I get uh criminal minds and I get my hunter a lot and I prefer my okay over criminal minds every day of the week whoa 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 <laughs> <Pump> the brakes <laughs> what we're not gonna do is talk about my hunter um so Every, there's good shows and there's bad shows, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Personally, my thing, like one of the things I'm very, very interested in is the FBU's behavioral analysis unit. Mm-hmm. I think they're fucking awesome. Um, for a really long time, it was kind of my dream to work there. Me too, so when yeah. my hunter came out, I was like, holy crap, I know exactly who this is based on. Yep. And also... My- Mindhunter's a little bit different because it's not really a procedural. It's more like a historical show. Yeah, yeah. And I know John Douglas consults on the show, and John Douglas is, like, who the main character is named after. I have thoughts on that, but... And they... Well, yeah. But they did so good with casting, also. Mm -hmm. Everything was super accurate. Like, that's probably one of the better criminology shows, if I had to pick one. Honestly, if I had to pick Mindhunter 2, you know, and then there's shows on ID Discovery, um, Unusual Suspects. If you're looking for a good true crime show, it's not procedural. It's This is not sponsored, by the way. Not sponsored. Um, Unusual Suspects is so good because they don't, there's no bias. There's no fake script writing. Yeah, there's some, you know, dramatizations. That's, you know, what it's supposed to do. But there's a clear beginning, middle, and end. It's only the facts. And it'll even say, like, hey, you know, XYZ was charged. And police are unsure if he should have been. Or, like, whatever. But they'll be honest with you. Like, I like shows like Unusual Suspects or Forensic Files. Because it's very too... It, it's strictly facts. I think but, that's yeah. something important to discuss as well. And, I, you know, interestingly, I just got into a discussion with some of my followers about this on my personal TikTok because I um, posted a few videos about West Memphis 3 and, of course, Paradise Lost came up. Paradise Lost is one of my favorite documentary series. I think it was pretty revolutionary for its time. But mm-hmm. I put a warning in my video about it that every documentary, which, you know, Except for things like Mindhunter, where there's not an agenda, yeah. or you know some of the shows that you're talking about, where there's not an agenda, they're talking about older cases, there's not re- anything to prove. Yeah. Um. Then especially the newer ones. Um. Not to call anyone out, but especially some of the newer Netflix ones. Yeah. Elisa <laughs> Lam. Oh God, I fucking hated that documentary. Yeah, I have awful. a twelve-part series on my TikTok about why I hated it. Um. There's a bias. Hmm. There is a bias. Someone goes into making documentaries with the intention of something. So Paradise Lost, while I love them, the intention was to show that the West Memphis Three are innocent. So Mm -hmm. if there's evidence that maybe didn't look great for them, they're not going to include that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important when you watch any true crime documentary, do your own research, look at other sources as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's definitely not like oh you watch one documentary that's everything there is to know about every case mm-hmm. i mean we saw it with the job of ramsey you know to bring her up again up until the abc special came out people were really iffy on that case and then all of a sudden everyone's had their theory on who did it we're not here to talk about what our beliefs are you can think what you want we're not here to talk about you know that case but after that, there is a dramatic shift in the public opinion of that case, and it drastically affected, like, you know, so many people were, like, looked at that one thing, and now it's just, like, why do you think this person did it? And then they'll just, like, list a couple things, and you're, like, that's that's not really good. Like, you need more. I think that the Elisa Lamb case, which is not something I'm personally comfortable with us covering, just because I think that she has been very, very exploited in her death. 
Um, and her family is very against true crime and yeah. Which is why that documentary was so, I mean, that's part of it, but the mm-hmm. documentary was so unethically done. But mm-hmm. then some of the stuff in it, oh my God, or like that one documentary, there's so many true crime documentaries I hate. <laughs> there's yeah. that one, I can't remember what it's called. It's the, it's about the Watts family. Oh yeah, yeah. But they just shit on Shanann the entire fucking time and her family has come out and said like please stop talking about our kid Mm -hmm. please just leave her alone she she has been murdered leave her alone let us rest in peace he's confessed and then this documentary is like airing out all of her dirty secrets and is like well she was bad with money she did this she did this she did this i think that i mean oh we might be torn on this we haven't talked about it i even think like the ghost hunter episodes a lot of them Mm -hmm. are in very poor taste very poor taste yep Going to crime scenes to communicate with deceased children mm-hmm. gives I mean, me the ick. Some people went to Mama Tot's son where he oh, was okay. killed and tried communicating with him. Oh my god. I cannot imagine what it feels like to be a family member and have people <laughs> intrude upon my peace that way. Mm-hmm. Just ugh. Especially, oh god, yeah. Especially, like, these people who have come to terms with their loved one being taken away from them, that are, you know, trying to heal, trying to be at peace. Imagine scrolling past a YouTube video or documentary where they're like, her spirit can't rest because she needs to be avenged. Just imagine, ugh. Yep. Or, like, scrolling on Facebook and you see people just, like, sharing, like, the theories on what happened to your family. I think that, like, a big, this is not what we're (laughs) here to talk about, but I think a big problem and a big reason why the true crime community has become even more uh, exploitive than it was before is because social media allows people to feel disconnected from families. Mm -hmm. I think ethical true crime is making a resurgence because families are coming online now. Look at Sarah Turney, look at more Murray's sister, look at all of these individuals are coming forward and they're going, hey this is me this is my story this is my love Kara Robinson calls people out or she did on TikTok a, a, a lot for mm-hmm. using her name using her story and not even tagging her yeah it's not profiting and getting views and getting notoriety and I mean we saw with the Gabby Petito case <sighs> this is breaking news and account after account after account and I mean one of my favorite TikTokers and I'm so glad she's back bed back and blood back and beyond I yeah she just came back and i saw her video like an hour after she posted and i honestly had a tear in my eye i was so excited she came back because called them out and she like made like mocking videos of like this is how ridiculous you sound like you're excited that there's going to be an update in a case that beyond is the one who she was a former trafficking victim right and she just yeah trafficking okay i thought so yep she's incredible she's absolutely incredible i have nothing but respect and love for her and I, I cover, I used to cover current cases and, um, honestly it was pretty recently that I stopped doing it, but I covered Tristan Bailey mm-hmm. and the way the people in the comments were like, oh, give me an update. Give me an update. There was people in my comments saying, oh, she deserved it. Oh, whatever. And there was so many rumors in the beginning of that case mm-hmm. of people saying, Things that had happened or hadn't happened or who she was with or she did this or she did this. She was 14. I'm sorry. I'm going to retract that because I'm not sure that she was 14. I know Aiden Fuji was 14. Yeah. Yeah. I think she was younger. I think she may have been like 13. But I remember when I first started getting somewhat big on TikTok, um, there was a case where a decently famous TikToker had killed her parents and she was juvenile so everyone was like oh my god justice for all cover this case cover this case cover this case i mean my my tags i that was the craziest i had ever seen my mentions um and i just went on and i was like i'm not talking about this case yeah no this is a brand new case first of all we have no information we have no solid evidence we don't even like she might have done it but we don't even know that she did it like like no no, no, no. And then they're like, oh, why aren't you going to talk about it? And I was like, no. 
I made it like a hard fast rule on my page. Um, I won't I won't give the case name because the family well you know the family's asked which which I'm about to talk about but I posted um uh, a video about a case that it it was a little bit of an older case but the trial had just finished mm-hmm. so it had been given out so I like talked about it and I thought I was okay and we'll kind of talk about this a little bit later but I thought I was okay because I did it in a very empathetic way mm-hmm. so to me the video was ethical I talked about um the victim I talked about her personality and what she liked and didn't like and what her family thought about her and I I made it about her and not about her murderer and so I thought that it was all right and I woke up to my phone being blown up I had so many mentions of people being like hey um the family wants this shit taken down and I immediately freaked out immediately took it down I (laughs) had a panic attack I messaged Sarah Turney who's fucking awesome um, and I was like, Sarah, I try to be so ethical and I try to be so good. And I messed up. I, I fucked up. And she mm-hmm. was so nice and like talked me through it. But after her and I had that conversation, that's when I was like, yeah, I can't cover recent stuff. I, I can't do it. Yeah. I I made it a point when I first started getting big, whenever I did juvenile cases, because when I first started like, you know, getting followers, I did cases for my dissertation. So I used fake names and then mm-hmm. just like regular backgrounds. And then once I started covering more cases, um, I only did once it had a trial. That was like a big thing for me. Just because you don't know and you don't know how you can influence a case too. You don't know who, because you could be reaching someone that's a potential jury. And if they're like, oh my God, I follow this forensic psychologist with curly hair on TikTok and... She said that she thinks this, this, and this. I don't see that in this trial, but I'm going to follow her because I trust her. I unknowingly affected the case. You know what I mean? Also, I think we're jumping ahead of ourselves. We're all the way. <laughs> Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. All right. Let's punch straight in with myth number four. So myth number four is that only good people are victims and that the victim's families are always right. I just want to preface this by saying that I really don't want to make it seem like we're saying that you know the victim's families are never right there's just been a lot of cases that Rebecca and I have both personally seen where the family is advocating for something that really isn't there to advocate for for example you know families have this bias and of course we respect families and victims that's the point of doing this podcast and the point of ethical true crime is respecting families and victims and sometimes that respect is respecting them but also knowing when to kind of either bow out or just like I really respect what the family is going through but I'm not sure I'm on the same level as them and I don't want to have it come across the wrong way and there's no need for me to um I I personally went that may be a thing where like we respect and support the family. However, we may not talk about the case on the podcast. Right. I mean, there's one that on TikTok, I personally had an issue where a family member came to me, asked me to do a case, and I had said no because there was, um, it had not gone to trial yet. And I did not feel comfortable as I was just talking about. I don't feel comfortable doing cases that have not gone to trial yet. And another part was because a large part of me, I respect the family member to the end of the earth for what they went through. But I think that they were seeing the case differently than what had happened, which there's nothing wrong with that. But as a professional, I also have to be a professional and kind of steer away from where there's no need for me to cover this case. And I don't want to upset the family members. Yeah. Because in all honesty, I a crime had happened no doubt, just not the way that the person thought it had happened. And I didn't want to be the person to be like, yeah, let me cover this case for you since you're a grieving family member. Um, By the way, I don't think it happened like X, Y, and Z. I think it happened this way. That's just disrespectful. And there's no need for me to do that. I I think that that happens kind of a lot. And it's, it's difficult because it is so easy to empathize. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I say it all the time, like, I have no idea what I would do if one of my children was taken from me. Mm-hmm. I would, if I, if I had to, to get justice, I would lie and cheat and steal and do whatever I had to. Yep. But from our perspective, it's a little difficult. Um, there's a case, a, another case that I'm very, like, passionate about and have researched a lot. And 
unfortunately, it's something that I've kind of concluded. Um, obviously, we don't want to give details about these cases, but there is. And so it seems it seems irresponsible mm-hmm. to promote a narrative that I, I just don't think it, it just is. It doesn't look true. It yeah. seems like a witch hunt. It does. It does seem like a witch hunt. And, you know, the myth is that only good people are victims. You know, every true crime documentary that everybody watches, oh, they lit up a room when they walked in. There is, again, one of my honestly top two favorite TikTokers, Stanti Potenza. I love her. She is a goddess. I, her and Aaron Hammer are my two favorite all-time TikTokers. If y'all, for some reason, hear this and want to (laughs) collab, let us know. I would die for them. (laughs) (laughs) and so she made a mock video and she was like point of view you're the girl who doesn't know what's going on in a true crime documentary and so it shows you know her acting as a mom and dad talking about you know about how their daughter was a perfect little angel and captain the cheerleading and is perfect in every way and then you have like the girl that doesn't know what's going on and she's like oh Brittany the bitch that threw Connor down the stairs like and then it like cuts to the parents talking about how she was never a good girl never drank never did drugs and then you go to the other girl that's like I think it I think she cheated off my math test last week because she was hungover like it was just such a vast difference of just like victims are not always just a hundred percent ray of light which is just you know it's real life none of us are like that a hundred percent nope our next myth is that serial killers are everywhere everything is a crime oh no (laughs) so I just want people to remember that Suicide happens. Accidents happen. Not everything is a crime or conspiracy. Hey, if you listen to Dr. Crime Podcast, you may remember our very first episode, which was on Harley Dilly, mm-hmm. which, did it look suspicious? Yeah. Was there some questionable social media stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, after all the investigation, it was an accident. Serial killers are actually decently rare. Um, <laughs> the FBI estimates that there's about 2,000 active serial killers across the country. Serial killers that have just evolved with time and then they're yeah. harder to catch. Um, but there is criteria to meet for a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And there may or may not be an episode coming up this season where we talk about people spreading a rumor that there's a serial killer here in New Hampshire. <laughs> I have heard you rant about this before. <laughs> um, spoiler alert, no. You know, bodies are being found in the river. Tragic, yes. Could a couple of them be connected? If you look hard enough, sure. Um, But that does not mean the, you know, 212 bodies they've pulled out in the past, like, five years or whatever the statistic was, does not mean that there's a serial killer. It means that the river is the most common place to, to dispose of remains. Also, along the banks of the Merrimack is known for a homeless population where people overdose and they'll just other people be like oh shit what do we do and then put the body in the river because they don't know what else to do you have people that accidentally drown you have people that think that they know the Merrimack water and they don't and the currents pull them pull them out it happens all of the time so it just there's so much to making a serial killer other than all these bodies are being found in the water I would love, 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 love for us to do an episode discussing specifically what the criteria is for a serial killer, serial killer, and then discussing like the different types, oh. giving some examples. Oh, that is coming up, Miss Rebecca. <laughs> yes. That is coming up. We are, you know, as I was kind of teasing, the reason there's not a serial killer in New Hampshire is because it, there's no criteria met. Yeah. And so, you know, definitely going over. A lot to do with, like, the misinformation, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember reading, honestly, I think there were TikTok comments, and it was on a Chris Watts video. Mm-hmm. And people were arguing about whether or not he met the criteria for a serial killer, mm-hmm. um, which he does not. He does but, not. Nope. Um, people were saying because him killing a Shanann at home and then traveling to the oil fields and killing the girls there. That would make it two separate events, which it do- it does not. But yeah, right. I think I think that that misinformation is sort of what leads to this stereotype that everyone's a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it they're not. I mean, and you can have someone like Aaron Hernandez. 
he killed two people and there was a potential for a third, which technically numbers wise would have made him a serial killer, but he wouldn't have been a serial killer. Right. So there's definitely a lot of criteria to go over, but just remember just because there's like a coincidence and where bodies are found as you just have to look at so much more than where bodies are found. You have to look at demographics. You have to look at, you know, when did they die? You have to look at the pattern. You have to look at the signature and any rituals. And there's so many different things you have to look at to identify a serial killer other than, wow, all these bodies are being found in the river. There must be a serial killer. There's not. I can't wait for this episode. I can't wait to discuss this in an episode. I, I, I think it's so interesting, oh, especially because you're a forensic psychologist, but it is so interesting how you can look at a crime scene or you don't even need a full crime scene mm-hmm. just literally look at remains mm-hmm. and go oh well this was their motive yep that's and for I serial mean, killers it's so it's just very interesting how that plays out i do think that there is a very large serial killer out there and i do think that they did come to new hampshire but for a very short time and only had a few victims and moved away and we'll get to that if wink wink nudge nudge we do that in an episode um because it is very interesting. But yes, just remember that not everything is a crime. Not everything is a conspiracy. Suicides happen. Accidents happen. And a lot of people have such a hard time understanding that. Because they're like, how could this person have killed themselves? They were so happy. Depression works like that, unfortunately. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things that I see um, very, very sadly. And very understandably with the family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of cases where to a lot of individuals, it's very obviously a suicide mm-hmm. and the family is very adamant. Like, no, this person wouldn't have killed themselves. No, this person wouldn't have run away. No, this person wouldn't have whatever. And it's just, you just, you can never really know. You can never know. And I understand advocating for your family. And if there's a suicide and you're like, hey, this doesn't seem right, that's fine. You're allowed to question things, but that doesn't mean that every case is an issue um you know yeah just remember that accidents and suicides and accidents happen a lot of sometimes someone can accidentally kill someone it doesn't have to be this big grand thing where it was this big motive no no accidents happen move on so our next myth oh i could talk about this one for ages that it's it's about amber alerts it's about amber alerts there is a myth that Amber Alerts are for just any missing child. Um, that's not true. So Amber Alerts also have to meet very specific criteria. The biggest one being that the law enforcement has to believe that the child was abducted. A lot of people don't really know that. And so every single time a child goes missing, if you go through the comments on any social media, all the comments are, Oh, why isn't there an Amber Alert yet? What the fuck is the police doing? What's going on? Just that individual does may not meet the criteria. Criteria for an Amber Alert is, yep, reasonable belief by law enforcement that an abduction has occurred. They have to believe that the child is in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death. There has to be enough descriptive information about the victim and the abduction for law enforcement to issue an Amber Alert to assist in the recovery of the child. The abduction is of a child 17 or younger. And the child's name and other, like, data have to be entered into other systems, like the N6 system. Mm-hmm. So Amber Alert is not just a missing child. And also, most kidnappings are done by people right. who know the child. I, I think uh, most of them are also, it's the non-custodial parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A very large portion of kidnappings are non-custodial parents or um, family members. So let's move on to myth number seven. True crime genre and media does not affect current court cases. So it's okay to just post whatever you want. Wrong. Um, Media has a large influence on cases. I mean, even in the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. Oh, God. Gabby Petito, the West Memphis Three. I mean, West Memphis Three happened in 1993. So there wasn't obviously social media back then. Um. But even coming up now, you know, West Memphis 3 case, the Chris Watts case, so many cases um, have had influence with social media. 
and even before social media was a thing just media mm-hmm. <laughs> in general I know you and I both I, ooh, I don't know if we're allowed to say it but worked on some exciting projects involved mm-hmm. <laughs> the Menendez brothers case and that entire trial was a court of public opinion it was ran by the media mm-hmm. same thing with West Memphis 3 that was that was a satanic panic case which is a media frenzy media frenzy and I mean Gabby Petito young pretty white girl you know goes missing with an abusive boyfriend media globbed onto that I mean it's all you saw anywhere I couldn't go three TikToks in a row without seeing something about Gabby and we like to this day I'm not convinced that that didn't have a role in Brian Landry killing himself oh I'm sure it did which, you know, we're not saying anything. Neither of us thinks that Brian Laundry is innocent. Oh, 100%. But, but yeah, I'm sure that the media definitely had an influence on the way that that played out, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. Um, not that, you know, again, not saying anything positive about him. But had he not done that, we could have caught him and, you know, some justice could have been served. Right. We could have heard a trial. We could have known more information about it. But just our words and social, and then of course social media globs onto the first theory that they hear. Oh, and you won't hear anything. I mean, we see it even in cases that are old. You know, OJ Simpson. Uh, people glob on to theories, and then that can make them be like, "Well, something's just off." I always think it's this person, and then when you're like, "Why do you think that?" and they're just like, "Well, it's obvious." No, it's not. Why do you think that? you remember this is such a good example and unfortunately i cannot remember the victim's name but there was recent recently like maybe within the last five years but there was a story where a pregnant mom had her child cut out of her womb oh yes she was murdered and the husband was interviewed like the following day Mm -hmm. on all of the interviews every youtube video every facebook post every everything all the comments were like, this guy reminds me of Chris Watts. He killed mm-hmm. her. Fucking murderer. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Calling him Watts 2.0 and stuff. And then it, it came out that her best friend. It was friend, her best friend, yeah. Her husband was completely innocent. But everyone online was convinced because he talked like Chris Watts. Yeah, and because he looks like Chris Watts. And he must be a sociopath, which will bring us right <laughs> into our next myth. That anyone who is mean or self-absorbed is a psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissistic asshole. No. And every, every offender, every murderer or whatever isn't either. Right. There, there are some people that kill and murder and don't have any of these qualities. You know, no, Brenda, just because your ex was toxic to you and told you that you were too fat doesn't make them a narcissist. I am very sorry to tell you. Narcissism is not just about being toxic and making everything about you. Yes, a large part of narcissism is having a grandiose sense of self, but it's also being very manipulative. It's being very stoic. It's being, um, I can get my DSM out and go over all the criteria, but narcissism is not just a trait you should throw around lightly. It's not. And everyone does. I mean, you know, People think of any ex, like every, almost every girl I know will call every ex a toxic narcissist. They might have narcissistic qualities. That doesn't make them a narcissist. You can be conceited without being a narcissist. Right. There's an entire checklist you have to meet in order to be considered a narcissist. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if someone is truly suffering or dealing with narcissistic personality disorder that's going to bleed into other areas of their life as well, right? It's not going to be only evident in their romantic way. hmm Yeah. It's going to bleed everywhere. I mean, the top five jobs for someone with psychopathy and narcissism is doctor, lawyer, CEO, politician, and clergyman. I am so shocked that active duty military is not on that. Yeah. People think they know what a narcissist is and they just don't. There's an entire checklist that you have to meet to be considered a narcissist. So no, not, you know, just because you have an ex-boyfriend that treated you like garbage, you know, maybe they called you a few names and they were toxic and sure, abusive. Sure, that does not make them narcissists. In order to be narcissistic, you have to meet specific criteria 
And um, you have to meet five or more of the following. So let me just go over them. Number one, having a grandiose sense of self-importance, which means they exaggerate achievements. They exaggerate their talents and they'll um, expect to be recognized for superior without actually having those achievements. So that's the person that's like, oh, um, I won first in this contest, that contest, and this contest. Meanwhile, they never even fucking entered. Or if they did, they didn't even place top 10. Number two, they're preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. So they are obsessed with the idea of having the perfect arm candy and being rich and being powerful with success and influence and power. Number three, that they believe that they are unique and can only be understood and associated by other people of high, high status people. So essentially, this is just saying that they believe that they're so important that they can only associate with other important people and that everyone else is beneath them. Take that into consideration as well. They require excessive admiration. You are not continuously doting on them. And they will find ways. That's This is where, you know, requiring excessive admiration ties into part number one. Because this is just saying, like, that they require excessive admiration. So they're going to exaggerate what they do in order to get that admiration. They thrive on that admiration. Number five, they have a sense of entitlement and unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations, meaning that they can go anywhere and get anything they want. They'll walk into Starbucks and cut the line because they're allowed to. Uh, Then number six is interpersonally exploitive, exploitative. Uh, That means that they'll take advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends, meaning that they'll take advantage of other people if it means that it'll benefit them. That's why you see a lot of like your lawyers, CEOs, your doctors. That's because they had to step on other people to get to where they are and they have no problem doing it. And they want that admiration. They want that trophy that they're the best in what they do. Number seven, they lack empathy, unwilling to recognize or identify with feelings and needs of others. And the next one is they're often envious of others and believes others are envious of them. So they're going to be jealous of people that are more rich than them, but then think that everybody beneath them is jealous for what they have. And the lastly, they show arrogant, haughty behavior and at, or attitude. So this is just saying they're so incredibly arrogant that it sees through them that you can see it. Um, you need at least five of nine of those. I know so many people that call someone a narcissist and they meet like two of these. Um, I think a really good fictional example of a narcissist is actually Derek Shepard on Grey's Anatomy. Oof, there goes our listeners. <laughs> I know, I know. Don't don't turn off the podcast. Hear me out here. If you think about Derek Shepard's character, which I hated, that was levels of narcissism. And you cannot convince me otherwise. I mean, he believed that he was so special that he could only talk with people that were of better importance to him. He required excessive admiration. Look at how he treated Meredith. She had to continuously dote on him. And if he didn't, he would get upset. And if she did something that was better than him, he got mad at her for that. I especially didn't like the way that he treated Amelia. I know you and I have Mm -hmm. had our private discussions about it, but Amelia is my favorite character. Me too, yeah. Yeah, I think that Derek is super overrated in a lot of ways. And I think he's the perfect example of a narcissist because he's someone that you don't see as a narcissist. Right. That kind of goes into also sociopaths and psychopaths, Mm -hmm. which are also words that get tossed around a lot in true crime um interestingly there's not dsm5 criteria for either of those but instead it's antisocial personality disorder correct and um one of my favorite topics because once i learned it it was one of those things i couldn't unlearn it's one of those things that like once you once you notice it and once you know it you can't never see it the same there is a big difference between a sociopath and a psychopath oh yeah there is i didn't know that until i was going through my phd and i had one professor he did this big grand thing where he was like there's a difference between psychopaths and sociopaths and difference between a child molester and a pedophile and i was like no you're so stupid what are you talking about and then at the end of the presentation i'm like holy shit and Mm -hmm. i've never looked at criminals the same again (laughs) So I, 
I'll read the DSM-5 criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So, again, there are seven kind of bullet points here. And for antisocial personality disorder, it's three or more of them, but in a pattern um, since the age of 15. So that criteria is failure to conform to social norms concerning lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Deceitfulness, as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. Impulsivity or failure to plan. Irritability and aggressiveness, as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. Having no regard for the safety of self or others. Consistent irresponsibility, as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations. And the last one is lack of remorse or inability to feel guilt as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. Mm -hmm. I also have a fictional character when I tried to think about who I thought fit their criteria. Amy Dunn from Gone Girl is perfect. She's, she would be more of a sociopath. Yeah, I definitely yeah, Amy Dunn's a great example of a sociopath. Um, as I was saying earlier, there is a difference between a psychopath and a sociopath. One of the biggest differences is one is likely created at birth and will show symptoms as little as three years old. Um, and again, you can't diagnose under the age of 18. And sometimes the traits can just be outgrown. But if they're not being outgrown, the parents will be like, yeah, they've done that ever since they were like a kid. Um, psychopathy tends to be genetic and sociopathy tends to be um, environmental and a result of childhood trauma. Um, and also another big one. And my professor was like, if you ever have a question on if they're a psychopath or a sociopath, it's how do they present themselves? Are they a go-getter that knows what they're doing and they are you know, just living their life and their, or their purpose of like doing things, or are they like hiding in their mother's basement because they just can't get out of, you know, they, they can't get out of this society. They're a sociopath. That's like another way to like determine is just kind of like how they present themselves. Because a, one of the big differences is with psychopathy, they're likely to have a very strong career, only have a couple jobs and success, uh, succeed in those jobs. Whereas sociopathy, you are likely to have multiple minimum wage jobs. You can barely go through college. You can't keep a job. So you're likely to have like low income. So that's another like dividing factor between the two. For psychopathy, there is something called the hair checklist. Um, It was created by a Canadian psychologist back in the 1970s. And there is... 22 markers um, and you can it's definitely present possibly present or definitely absent and so just quickly running through just quickly running through the checklist um superficial charm previous diagnosis of psychopath or similar so uh antisocial personality disorder egocentric slash grandiose sense self-worth um prone to being bored and have a low frustration tolerance pathological lying Cunning slash lack of sincerity, lack of remorse, lack of affect or emotional depth, callous slash lack of empathy, a parasitic lifestyle, short-tempered, promiscuous sexual behaviors, early behavioral problems, lack of realistic long-term plans, impulsivity, irresponsible behavior as a parent, frequent marital relationships, juvenile delinquency, poor probation or parole risk, failure to accept responsibility for own actions, many types of offenses, and drug or alcohol abuse not direct cause of antisocial behavior. So um, those are the 22 traits. And then the highest score you can get is a 40. Um, So the closer to 40, the stronger likelihood of having psychopathy is. It seems, obviously, I could totally be off the mark. But I don't know if you've ever read the book or watched the movie. There's something about Kevin. But it seems like they did a pretty good job of, um, you know, visualizing or, you know, describing Mm -hmm. psychopathy. Yep. Yeah, they really did. Um, A TV show, honestly, one of my favorite well-written characters, so well-rounded, really shows true and honest psychopathy. 
Siler from Heroes. I know that's like an older show, so some of our audience is like, what the fuck, Joss? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, to date, out of every show I've ever watched, Siler is by far the best fictional psychopath I have ever seen written. And that goes above Dexter. I was just going to say, I was, I thought, I thought you were going to say Dexter the first time. Nope. I mean, Dexter was good. He was very well written. He was very well acted. Michael C. Hall knew what he was doing with this character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that part of the psychopathy in Dexter, although you can make an argument that he is really sociopathic. I think that the writing did really well, but I think Michael C. Hall just took it in a direction that writing couldn't. And I think that any other actor would have not made that character so well. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, so just some, just because someone's self-absorbed does not make them a narcissist, does not make them a psychopath, does not make them a sociopath. Just because someone commits a crime does not make them a psychopath or sociopath. Just because you don't like someone does not make them narcissistic. And that's going to move us on to myth number nine, which is that true crime is ethical if the information is relayed empathetically. Well, so we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier when I I actually mentioned my own channel as an example of that. Mm -hmm. But I think that we sort of fall into that trap a lot where we've gotten into this weird space with true crime media where Mm -hmm. we put people on camera and make them look very sad. So we're supposed to go, oh, they really care about it. And, oh, you know, it's not really the case. Um, We mentioned it in our intro to the show. Like we don't do selfie thumbnails. That's because there's creators on YouTube that will edit themselves in with, you know, a shocked face or a sad face right into the victim's pictures. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get a lot of hate here. And Rebecca, I'm sorry if our ratings are going to tank after I'm about to say this. Please don't cancel me. I'm too young for that. Doing your makeup while talking about someone who's being murdered is fucking disgusting. No, big agree. I've said it on my channel before and they came for me. So, you know fine but i think what's worse than that i mean it's all bad but there's true crime mukbangs where people are eating while talking about the worst fucking day of someone's life yeah or you have people um (laughs) that are dancing and like make like little like info videos on like cases i can't get over it i cannot get over i just don't understand how can you be putting on a face of makeup and like dabbing foundation and then sitting there be like yeah so oh this poor girl she was held and bound and she was raped for three days straight before he you know killed her and they're applying foundation yeah I- <laughs> just think just think for yourself for one second whether you like that creator because we all know who i'm talking about whether you like them or not you can like them and that's fine I don't find that appealing. I find that very disrespectful. But I want you to think, what if it was your mom? What if it was your sister or your daughter? And there is some woman on YouTube putting on mascara while talking about your daughter being raped. I think that a lot of what kind of gets me about that is that a lot of individuals, I won't say names, Mm -hmm. Did not have any interest in the true crime space, did not do anything for victims, were not doing any advocating, are not educated in this field, are nothing. They were doing something else on social media. Mm -hmm. Noticed, oh my, true crime is taking off. Guess I'll start talking about victims. Mm -hmm. Or start talking about cases or whatever. And it just feels real, like bandwagony is the wrong word. No, it's the right word. I would use bandwagony. Then, I mean, yeah, then that's exactly, that's, that's what it is. And for a lot of people that are in this space that have educations, that have experience, that dedicate themselves to this field, it feels really like, man, (laughs) what the fuck? Right. It is frustrating when you see a creator like that, that's nothing more than just a hobby. And then they're jumping on the bandwagon. They're getting thousands of views and thousands of dollars. They used to be a channel that that covered racing. How did this happen? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it it can definitely it's it's definitely a bad taste too. And and I think it just again think of, 
when it comes to ethical true crime, I've had so many people and I've seen comments on Rebecca's page as well. So I know it's not just my page. How do you know if, if a true crime page is ethical? And I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Would you want your daughter or son or your mother or your father on that podcast or that YouTube channel or that TikTok? Would you want them? Would you want to see their face while someone is eating and talking about the horrific crime that happened? Because if you do, if you're okay with that, then it's ethical to you. And I support you and I free speech, baby. You do you. You know, I've lost my brother and my mother. So if I think of them and I watch something and I'm like, if they were talking about my mom, I would be fucking furious. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. support that. Finally, our last myth that we really wanted to go over because it's come up quite a bit. And again, I've seen this on Rebecca's page and I've seen it on my page. The a really big myth is that a guilty plea means that they're guilty that they did it. And that if someone takes a plea bargain, that means they obviously did it. Oh, yeah. I could talk about this one forever. <laughs> um, and we'll probably have a case coming up where we're going to talk about a plea bargain. But you have to remember that sometimes it's better and cheaper to plead guilty and get a fraction of the sentence than it is to gamble with a jury because Mm -hmm. basically a plea bargain and there's so many different types of plea bargains um you know have rebecca chime in here in a second about one of her favorites but there are so many plea bargains where it's like hey if you admit to this crime you can get eight years in prison and then parole for two years and then you're done Or you can go to trial and potentially get 45 years in prison. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I think I would seriously consider be like, you know what, I'll just do the eight years because I don't know if I trust a jury to listen to my case or not. It's one of those things where you just have to, people have to know what evidence their team is bringing to the table. Mm Mm-hmm what evidence is against them and yeah in some cases it may just make sense and you know i know we are in the true crime space so oftentimes we're talking about murder trials but especially in like lower trials it's easier just to plead guilty and pay a ticket or whatever Mm -hmm. it's easier you know plead guilty you do one year in prison fifteen hundred dollar fine and you're out as opposed to nine years in prison and you know who knows if you can even get out then Nope, it's right. Because then you have to spend so much time on legal fees and wasting your time. And no, I'll just do the one year. It's easier. So just because someone takes a plea bargain does not mean that they are guilty. It simply means that they're that they don't want to gamble with the jury. A really good example of this, and I know that you you kind of just hinted that I was gonna discuss it, but one plea that I really, really I find very interesting mostly because it's really hard to understand (laughs) but it's the alfred plea so if you guys are familiar with the west memphis three case or um the staircase murder Mm -hmm. both used an alfred plea but i'll talk more so about the west memphis three but what an alfred plea is it's you pleading guilty while maintaining your innocence yep essentially it's like a big legal loophole for states to use to release individuals that have technically pled guilty to crimes. So if you've been following, you know, Damien Eccles's recent attempts to get that DNA retested, they have an Alfred plea. And one of the most common misconceptions I see is, oh, well, our- Arkansas doesn't want to test the DNA because the West Memphis Three is going to come back and sue. They actually can't mm-hmm. because in the state of Arkansas, they're guilty. Regardless of what DNA comes, regardless of whatever – They've been found guilty. They're the ones who did it. Check, check in the box. Right. Yeah, I, I think the Alfred pleas are really interesting and also just really misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people think, oh, they well, they said that they're innocent. Oh, technically, no. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different types of pleas. And we're going to have a case where we go over in-depth in this. But I've seen them brought up a lot on TikTok. I've seen it all over um, my For You page where someone's going over how, you know, they took a plea deal, so we're assuming that they're guilty. No. No. (laughs) Sorry, pumpkin. No. Um, There's just so much that goes behind a plea deal, and sometimes it is just better 
and cheaper just to plead guilty. Mm-hmm. I like I said, I might rather do the five years and the twenty years in prison. Especially because a lot of times, in order for a prosecution or de- yeah, mostly it's prosecution, um, for the prosecution to get that, they have to pressure them. They're like, all right, this deal is good for twenty four hours. Oh yeah, I don't even know what I want for. Tw- I can't make a decision for food in twenty four hours. Do you think I want to make a decision about if I want to spend five years of prison in my life or go to trial? Nope, that pressure. It'll get you. It will get you. So we hope you learned something today. Do you have questions about crime or forensic science that we didn't cover? Give us an email at drcrimepodcast at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at drcrimepod, which if you're not following, you should do so already. And we will look into episodes featuring your questions or maybe do another episode like this. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. That concludes this episode of Dr. Crime. For more information, be sure to check out the podcast description where we will link any sources that we used in today's episode. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram, like Justice just mentioned, at Dr. Crime Pod, and leave us a review wherever you stream your podcast.